You're listening to Shift, Human First Financial Guidance with Ross Marino. Today, we are shifting the conversation with Steve Lockshin. Hello, Steve. Hello. How are you? I am good. Been looking forward to having you on the podcast and talk with you. You're a fellow advisor, also an entrepreneur, do a lot of neat things out there. I know some of the businesses you've been involved. Not everybody may. So if you could take the first minute and introduce yourself. Steve Lockshin, been in the business for longer than I care to admit probably uh, north of 30 years, mostly on the RIA side, had a few different RIAs we've sold and renamed, but continue to do the same thing, which is serve ultra high net worth clients. Also started uh, Vanilla, which is a software product uh, that's focused on estate planning. And a number of other companies have been a fintech investor. So uh, very interested in seeing the industry advance. Now you work with ultra high net worth clients and I don't have a lot of those myself. I do have some higher net worth families. I probably know more. I definitely know more high net worth people than I actually have as clients. One thing I've seen over the years, and I know it's something you've got to be familiar with, is having kids turn into trust fund monsters when once they inherit the money, it just completely sends their life off the rails. So when you work with your clients, how do you help them think about that and try to avoid the trust fund monster syndrome? We spend a lot of time talking to clients about planning in a way that's different from, let's say, the traditional legal structure where it's per stirpital and it just gets divided by the number of kids and then divided by their number of kids, et cetera. And to really think about having what I call a family bank. So think of it as one pot or all the trust considered in unison, where the trustees are doling out things according to the client's wishes. So I'll use myself as an example. Um, our trusts basically say the trustees should think about all the trusts in unison uh, when making distributions. And when we're both gone, the things that we care about are education. So make sure that grandkids or great grandkids and so on and so forth have education paid for. And there's specificity around how much they get during college and the normal duration of college, whatever that may be, you know, a hundred years from now. So enough that they can focus on their studies uh, and not have to work. So there's money for flying back and forth if they need to and things like that. Some help with a roof over their head. And so there's some specificity around that. So they don't just get a bunch of money they can lose. It can't be over encumbered. They have to put some down themselves and it's not a huge number. It's, a, it's enough to make sure, like I said, they have a roof over their head and then a stipend. So regardless of how much money we may have, the stipend is relatively low. So I have a 23 and a 28 year old. If we passed tomorrow, I wouldn't want them to get X millions of dollars. I'd want them to get right now, we say in their thirties, 25,000 after tax adjusted for inflation in their forties, it's 50,000 and their fifties and beyond it's a hundred thousand. So it's the, in the Warren Buffett enough to do something, but not so much they can do nothing. And then there's a leaky valve on there to make sure that if um, the trust don't spend the 3% cap, that the difference between what it does spend and 3% goes to charity each year so that it doesn't just keep mushrooming in value and instead focuses on things that we care about. So the kids really never get, and this is how we talk to our clients, they really never get a chance to become trust fund babies because there isn't enough in there for them to just do nothing. Um, the things that we really talk about in the letter of wishes that we go over with clients are making sure that the kids, the heirs enjoy their journey, that they struggle a little bit so that they can appreciate uh, what it is that they actually do achieve. So you mentioned mushrooming. 
is there or are there any controls in place where if over 5, 10, 15 years, you see that the trusts just keep growing and growing and growing? Is that okay for many clients or do some of them want to have maybe a an additional charity feature where if it gets to X amount or grows X amount, we just move money over to charity? Well, I mean, again, because the 3% cap is in there. So it says in any given year, never spend more than 3%. Always spend 3% because the difference of between what you do spend and that 3% should go to charity. So if you look at normal Monte Carlo simulation, let's say a normal 7% you know, target return, 6, 7% target return, 2 to 3% for inflation. If you're spending 3%, and that other one percent for taxes volatility, there isn't going. It really isn't going to mushroom to a certain level. Now people may start with a very big amount of money, um, and typically if they want to do something different, they'll do it at death. Like you know, half goes into these trusts and the other half goes to charity or some percentage uh, or some spe specific dollar amount. But we encourage people to do their charitable planning while they're alive, and they can get the benefit of. The the deduction that they don't get, uh, their income tax deduction they don't get when they're obviously deceased. Clients are unique. People are unique. I'm sure you have some interesting stories and people you've worked with where they came up with ways to not just give their kids money, but to do other unique things with them. Do you got anything you could share? My my favorite feature. So again, we we use this letter of wishes. All the trusts that we structure, for the most part, are discretionary. And this letter is for the trustee to have guidance about what to do and how they think about it. So the things that I just mentioned for my heirs are in the letter of wishes. One of my clients who has five kids uh, asked that we include in it, and I've since included in others, um, language that says the trust can spend up to $100,000 a year, inflation adjusted, for vacation for the families as long as at least 75% of the heirs go. So it keeps everybody together, gets them to do things they might not otherwise do. For us, we've got a, a family home in Mexico that we care about. So we want our, assuming we still have it when we're gone, we want our heirs to be able to enjoy it, the trust to take care of it, but we put some limitations on it so they couldn't just live there and live off the trust. So it's a certain amount of weeks per quarter, things like that. But usually it's around... Um, things that are important for family unity uh, that I think are the most creative things. And I think that's a neat way to go. When you said about the vacation fund for the families, a thought popped into my head that I just heard somebody tell me this a few months ago. I thought it was brilliant. And then I remembered it was actually you. So you speak. <laughs> I still think that's a brilliant idea. And, and, and even as you were saying it, I had the same question I had before, which is, how do you determine how many people go, what the number is? And, and having a 75% number, that seems reasonable and fair that on any given year, maybe somebody can't make it. But if you can get the bulk of them there, here's a fund to get everybody there. I just thought that was a brilliant idea. Yeah. And it's it's important that you put your purpose in this letter or someplace in your documents so that your kids know this is my intent by doing this or you're ultimately your heirs because most of us are alive to see our kids mature into older adults. So you're really thinking about your grandchildren and great-grandchildren when you're doing some of this planning. But what's your intent? Why are you doing these things? What do you care about? What I say to every client is parents pretty much all want the same thing. We want our kids to be happy, healthy, and love each other. So the journey part of the discussion, I think, is the happiness. I see too many trust fund kids, which is why we spend so much time making sure this doesn't happen, be unhappy people because they never knew if they could have made it on their own or they never had the ambition to make it on their own. You know, it's 
there's a, a saying, you know, it's better to have traveled well than to have arrived. Um, and so just being delivered into a, a, a lovely home or flying private everywhere and not having enjoyed the journey, I think uh, takes away from the experience. And so explaining why those things are important to me helps avoid the shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves and generations. It helps create stewards of the errors. Or even if you're draconian, like I am, I don't want my kids ever on the investment committee. I don't want my heirs ever to have anything to do. I want it to be manna from heaven. I want them to enjoy each other and let the professionals do the investing and the dis distributing with guidance from the letter of wishes. And everyone should go out and be merry and do whatever they're going to do in their lives. Now, there's plenty of advisors that say they work with high net worth clients, even ones that don't work with a lot of high net worth clients. They present themselves that way. It's th this is what I do. How do you differentiate yourselves from all the advisors out there that say, well, of course, we work with high work, high net worth clients as well? My typical meeting with a client, pre-COVID, when we were doing less Zoom, they'd come into our office and our office looked like a tech shop. So I'd say, and this is considerate in the normal environment where let's say somebody has a liquidity event and they're doing a dog and pony show with five different firms. And pretty much most of the firms would say, we can come up with a better asset allocation than the other folks, or we can get you into investments the other folks can. It's the same story with just about everyone. We'll tend to say, we look different, or just look around you, the office looks different, we dress different, we talk different, and we focus on different things. And by the way, we charge different. We're fixed fees. Um, we tend to think that the investing piece is a commodity, um, not that it's not important, and the administration of it isn't important, and we're shepherds to make sure that we do that. Uh, appropriately, but that we focus on the things that really add meaningful impact to the family's uh, ultimate net worth, which for our clientele is always estate planning first, because it's a 40% instant return without discounts or you know, all the ongoing benefits going forward. Um, but it's also these soft things to really talk about that. And the most meaningful discussions that I have with clients are around the things you and I are talking about right now, their wishes and how to make sure that their kids are not ruined. Because if they are the people, who, and we tend to attract entrepreneurs. So if they're G1, they're the creators of the wealth, then they appreciate the comment about the journey versus the destination. And they want their heirs to enjoy the journey. And so we spend a lot of time restructuring existing plans to go away from the per stirpital, um, just give them a third, a third, a third at different ages into more thoughtful, meaningful uh, discussions around their wealth and what they want it to mean for their family long-term. Sounds like a great explanation of human first financial guidance and your letter of wishes and just the way you approach it is obviously a human first perspective where you want to connect with the family and find out what really matters and then set up their finances and the financial plan in, in order to execute that. Now, in the financial planning process, one thing I've noticed for years and years and years is issues with estate planning. And by that, I mean, if someone's high net worth, then going with particular attorneys may be a great option for them. But when you're not high net worth, the traditional attorney path in some cases may be overkill and extremely expensive. Um, I've seen this for years and years, and now we're finally coming to a place where technology and entrepreneurs like yourself are filling that gap. And I think it's been desperately needed. So I'd love you to talk about what led up to creating Vanilla and what was kind of the driver for that. Like many things, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So 
maybe 15 years ago, I, we started moving to all passive for our portfolios and very simplified portfolios, but we were still doing estate planning. And so when the conversation moved from um, the discussion around why a manager is outperforming or unperform, uh, underperforming to really the entire balance sheet, one thing became abundantly clear. If I move $50 million out of your state into trusts, when we looked at the report, the number was still the same at the bottom of the page because it all got lumped together. And so we created a new kind of personal financial statement that really looked at asset allocation at the top of the page, the way the client thinks about it, you know, vested versus unvested options or personal real estate versus investment real estate. Uh, some more plain language as opposed to small cap value and large cap growth. Um, then we looked at liquid versus illiquid assets because that's obviously important for clients in terms of how they enjoy their lifestyle. And then what was inside their estate versus outside their estate and how much we had already saved in taxes if they died tomorrow and how much they would save in taxes if everything grew at 5% to age 95. And very quickly, they're like, why aren't we doing more of that? Um, because the numbers were very, very large and the tax savings were very, very large. And most people enjoy saving money on taxes. And so I showed a few people in our industry what we were doing. Well, actually, first, I, I wanted it to automate it for ourselves because we were doing it in Excel and it took a, an extraordinary amount of time. Um, and then I showed it to some of my peers and they're like, I want that. And that became the genesis of the, the offering, but it was only going to be for five firms. Then we saw a bigger opportunity and the name Vanilla came from the fact that I would, the first meeting I was explaining my thought process to the first five employees and basically said, we don't do anything that that's crazy in estate planning. Everything we do is, you know, we don't even go up to the line. I mean, we stay on the conservative side of the line. It's all vanilla planning. We just know how to MacGyver together. And multiple times I said, this is a vanilla transaction, but you marry this to this and you get that. And so I think I probably said vanilla three or four times. And I went out to a lunch meeting and I came back and they said, we want to call the company vanilla. And that was the, the genesis of uh, both the software and the name. Love the story. Uh, certainly love the name. But I have to ask a follow-up question because this is something that financial planners struggle with. People come to us, they expect a level of expertise and capabilities that are beyond what they could do if just they did it themselves. So we have this drive to, I don't want to say overcomplicate things, but definitely show that there's so much we can do. Here's how we can help you. And it becomes much more complex. Vanilla, of course, is on the other end of the spectrum. And I think as advisors, we we overestimate the value of being complex and providing extra services. Uh, what, what do you think about advisors balancing that and how they perceive it? I think Steve Jobs said, if you can make complex things simple, you can move mountains or something, some derivative of that. I, I do think that's an important role that we have. And if you're confident in what you're doing and you're able to add value, being able to explain things in a simple manner is actually tremendously valuable. I, I think, unfortunately, many advisors overcomplicate because it's job, it creates job security. You end up being a translator for the complicated scenario you set up to begin with, um, and that keeps you employed. As I've gotten older and and you know had a little bit of success, I got to the point, and advice career is probably the outcome of that, where I said what I meant. I kept it real simple. I would say this is a waste of time or this doesn't matter. I mean, having someone with hundreds of millions of dollars and really two managers in the portfolio and tax enhanced index manager and a good fixed income manager, 
most advisors are being tremendously uncomfortable with that because they think, well, I'm not adding value. It's got to be more complex. You know, I need to have 1.375% in emerging markets, which makes no sense. So the idea of doing things in a simple manner is something I think advisors should embrace. And what we tried to do with vanilla, which was take complex things, make them simple. Documents don't need to be complex. I mean, I can tell if you need to do estate planning, I want to know who you love. So who, who are the beneficiaries? I want to talk about who you want to make decisions for you when you're unable to for both health and financial. And who do you want to be the trustee, which are usually probably the same people. Um, and then let's talk about who you want to get what and when. And that's the discussion. It doesn't need to be overly complex until you start getting into complex planning. And again, you should be able to explain it in a simple fashion. We take your big estate, we make it smaller, we sell it to your trust that's outside your state. Sometimes we make it bigger and we wash rinse, repeat. And that's basically what we're doing over and over again. You don't have to make it super complex. Certainly advice that I need to hear and have heard in the past and probably will need to hear it again in the future. But uh, we have that tendency to make it complex and uh, we just have to resist the urge just to keep it simple, keep it just vanilla. I, I think it's a great way to uh, explain that. I think it's a great way to close. I appreciate you being on the show. Appreciate the work that you've done out there and uh, hopefully we can talk to you again. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Shift with Ross Marino. Please visit humanfirst.live to learn more. This show is for general information purposes only and is not intended to provide recommendations or advice. Speak with a legal, tax, or financial advisor before making any decisions. Past performance references are historical and do not guarantee future results.